This is our third week, and we are still in chapter 1 of Genesis, and we'll probably uh, still be in that next week a little bit. And this is just one of those areas in Genesis where there's just too much detail to kind of fast walk it. We want to kind of make sure we have some understanding. Obviously, we can't exhaust everything. Uh, we can't, you know, get into every little detail, and, uh, but we want to take our time in enough way and not get too lost in the minutia, but do talk about the importance of creation and make sure we have uh, a general understanding of what the Bible teaches and what the Bible doesn't teach, and maybe those areas where things aren't so clear. So last week, uh, uh, on the outline, uh, we talked about more of the Creator, and we talked about Genesis 1-1. I bet most of you can quote Genesis 1-1 without even looking it up. And the Bible begins uh, not trying to prove the existence of God, but makes a statement that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Very straightforward. Uh, you know, if a Westerner had written that, they probably would have spent a lot of time trying to prove the existence of God. But uh, Moses, who is the uh, recorder, author of uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, we call that the Pentateuch. Jews refer to it as the Torah, the five books, Penta, five. You've heard the Pentagon, five. So five, the Pentateuch is the more Protestant uh, name for that, but Jews refer to it as the Torah. Moses is uh, the author of these books. Now, obviously, Moses wasn't there at creation. So uh, how was it that Moses gained the information that we have in Genesis chapter 1? A few thoughts uh, as we kind of get our way into chapter 1 a little bit is that, uh, one, God must have, in, in, in beginning the oral tradition uh, and passing down uh, the story of creation, uh, it's, I think we can assume a little bit that God must have given that revelation and that understanding to Adam. You know, Adam was there, but he was there kind of after the, after the fact, right? And so, so somehow that was communicated beginning with Adam and down through the lineage, uh, down through uh, Moses. Now, again, the first week uh, we talked about how Moses, uh, there's several references to writings and, and books and things that, that were a part of the uh, time of Moses. So writing and recording information and that type of thing wasn't unusual. Remember where Moses came from. He came from, uh, he was an educated uh, man coming from Egypt and was certainly a learned man. So I don't think it's too far of a stretch that God revealed that to Adam and then through those generations up through uh, Moses uh, that that creation account uh, was passed down in some way. But at the same time, the, uh, we, you know, it's safe to also believe uh, that God himself gave Moses a certain revelation to fill in the, the gaps there of the story. Uh, scripture is very clear in talking about how God and, you know, overshadows uh, and supervises the writers of Scripture. And part of that is to ensure their authenticity, the uh, account. So the Lord in, you know, remember when Moses was up at Mount Sinai uh, with the Lord and receiving the law, I don't think it's uh, too far of a stretch that part of that uh, account that when he was up there in, uh, in being given the law by, the, by Yahweh, that God must have again uh, given Moses the revelation of the creation story that perhaps even filled in details and accounts of, uh, of what was perhaps passed down. The one thing that you can't help but miss when you look at Genesis chapter 1 that it really, again, it's a testimony of God. It's a testimony of the God of creation. And it shows that God in His sovereignty and God in His magnificence, uh, when you read the creation account, that God is a God of order, that God is a God of planning, God has a purpose. We kind of, if you start backward, what's the final creation, if you will, on day six was that God made humankind. And so everything prior to that was preparatory for mankind's environment, for mankind's prosperity, for mankind's task. 
So God is a God of order. He's a God of planning. He's a God of purpose. And we see that what he wills, uh, he's able to bring to pass. Now, I talked a little bit about this last week, and I'm just going to kind of probably give it a little more of a cursory uh, uh, thoughts here, but you can get the handout. There's a little more detail on there. But when you come to a Christian biblical understanding of creation, uh, there are some various views of interpretation. What I would say are views of interpretation within the what I would call the conservative biblical evangelical tent, if you will. I'm not talking about uh, those who reject the authenticity of the Genesis creation account. I'm not talking about those who uh, have spurious views of God or creation or don't even believe any of that. Um, I'm really talking about within what we would call uh, biblical Christianity. There's some various interpretations concerning how we approach uh, the six-day creation, how we are to understand that. Uh, one is that regarding, uh, the first one is that uh, there are those that have an understanding that the earth, the age of the earth, and a lot of this has to, is built around the age of the earth, the age of creation, and so those who would advocate a young earth uh, dating from creation um, that roughly look at it as the earth is maybe anywhere from 10 to 12,000 years of age, they would see, uh, and generally those would interpret it a literal six-day, 24-hour day creation cycle and see the earth as a young earth, no more than 12,000 uh, years of age. Um, they would, um, and again, among many things I mentioned to you, probably the most popular advocate of that view that uh, you, you may want to look at, and I enjoy his stuff and find a lot of, you know, again, um, uh, great material is Ken Ham Answers in Genesis. That's the ministry behind the Creation Museum and the Ark. Uh, some of you have been to the Ark uh, there in Ohio, not Mount Ararat, but in Ohio. Uh, you've been to that. Well, Ken Ham and his material Answers in Genesis just tons of stuff, and that's why it doesn't help. It, there'd be no way to kind of even do justice to any of it. But he approaches mostly things from a young earth, uh, literal 24-hour, six-day cycle. And, uh, and again, I encourage you to look at that. Another interpretation view. Uh, yes? Williamstown, there you go, Williamstown, Kentucky. That, is that kind of on the border of Ohio, right over? Gotcha. All right, the second, uh, thank you, sir. The second uh, uh, view, and again, these are kind of different approaches, uh, that the second approach is interpreting the day, uh, not necessarily, and a lot of it has to do with the view, uh, and again, I'm trying not to get too technical here, but this is important. Uh, on your outline there, you see, regarding the interpretation in the Hebrew for the word day, and then the Hebrew the word is yom, okay? Everybody say yom. Yom, yom. Y-O-M is a transliteration of it, yom. And um, they would, and again, there, we'll talk about this in a minute. There's some, you know, there's, a, there's some friendly debate as far as whether yom, day in the Hebrew, um, does it mean a 24-hour day or does it speak of a day as an indefinite period, kind of like an age. We might would say an age or an epic or whatever. So, so there are those who look at the term day and do not necessarily see, see the word day um, not just in a literal morning and evening 24-hour day, but see the term day, God created in six days. The day isn't necessarily a 24-hour cycle, morning and evening, but it could be more of a period of time. Okay, so there is that view and understanding. And I mentioned to you uh, Hugh Ross, Hugh Ross uh, reasons to believe. Again, equal, I'm giving you both kind of opinions, both sides there. Hugh Ross has some excellent, both of these guys have some excellent, and it doesn't take long for me to watch them and realize they're way, way smarter than I'll ever hope to be. But if you want to dive deep, deep into that and, uh, and see kind of both angles from believers that love Jesus and, and their different approaches to the science and the testimony, they all 
believe in the authority of God's word. They all believe in Jesus. They've all come to saving faith. So they're two very reliable people. Uh, answers in Genesis for the six-day uh, young earth opinion. Hugh Ross, uh, reasons to believe that would see more of the creation cycle into larger periods of time, not necessarily the day in a 24-hour cycle. Uh, they they uh, are, are good resources for that. The third one is a little similar uh, to the second one, but sees days as, uh, again, that God created in six days. But to kind of oversimplify it is that, that when it says God created on day one, day two, that, that is um, uh, God's pattern or as a template to communicate uh, how we, we are to understand creation. So when it says, do you believe God created in six days? Yes, because that is exactly what it says. Where sometimes there's a little bit of uh, mystery or where there's not clarity is exactly in the how did he do that? What exactly did those days look like? Uh, and this again, what could be in between those days? So let's say that God created on day one, but they would say that there could be um, an undetermined amount of time between each day. And that gives the reason there's a little bit of a struggle for that is because when you're talking about science and those things as trying to wrestle with uh, some of the issues and the geological issues, the creation that might would suggest that Earth is much older than 10 or 12,000 years of age, that the Earth is considerably much older in that. Now, I know that the uh, Ken Ham and the answers in Genesis certainly have a very biblical and a persuasive view, and other sides do. I am just putting it out there, and you can help figure it all out, okay? I'm just kind of putting it out there, and uh, you'll kind of hear where I'm kind of, uh, I don't want to say in the middle, but I'm, I'm, I am a little bit, because I see kind of arguments on both sides. Here's what kind of I, I'm kind of where I'm at. I always say, it's like somebody says, what's your, what's your view of the rapture? It's usually the last book I read. Meaning, my point is, is that sometimes there's great persuasive arguments on end times. There's great persuasive arguments on creation within the biblical norm. Do you understand what I'm saying? Is that sometimes Christians have some different understanding of those things. Um, and so... Is it possible to affirm a literal six-day creation, but within that affirmation that when, when the Lord says he created day one, day two, day three, and we'll walk through those things, that's the way that God did that. But what we don't have is we don't necessarily have the information of exactly how that, what that looked like. What, what, do you believe that God can do something within a day that would be impossible for us to do in tens of a millions of years. Could God do it in a nanosecond? Whatever a nanosecond is. So we want, to get in, we want to get under the hood and start looking at things that we just can't find in the white space. All right. So I think it's okay to say, yes, I believe in a literal six-day, 24-hour day. And even that is the way, and I'll give a reason for that, that God intentionally communicated that by the Spirit through Moses down on paper for us to have uh, in our teaching tonight, that's the way we understand that. But what we don't exactly know is exactly what or how all of that worked out. Now again, both sides that I mentioned to you, those great resources from Ken Ham or Hugh Ross, have given some excellent, excellent uh, videos and teachings. And some of them are long, some of them are short. And I would encourage you to look at many of those things. So again, I believe that God created in six days, uh, he rested on the seventh day. I believe that he did that just the way, the straightforward way that you read the Bible. And one of the reasons that I think is a, is a good argument, because what, what happened on the seventh day? God didn't create. What did he do? He rested, and it was called the Sabbath day. Now, obviously, we know God doesn't need rest, right? He doesn't need sleep. He wasn't, like, worn out, like, man, I need a day off, you know. But, but God made that day. He blessed that day. And so if you... Now, the, why, how, the only way that Jews could understand the Sabbath is they understood it because Moses 
by the word of the Lord told them what the Sabbath was, or rather how to observe the Sabbath. The Sabbath is observed. The Sabbath means seven, right? You with me? The Sabbath is not Sunday. That's the first day of the week. So the Sabbath in Judaism is the seventh day. That is Saturday. When does the cycle of time in traditional Judaism, when does that begin? Ours begins at midnight, which is kind of crazy in the middle of the night. Theirs begins at what? Sundown, right? So at 6 o'clock, or whenever sundown is, that's when the new day begins. So how would they understand what exactly the Sabbath day was if they weren't understanding day as a morning and evening cycle? And if we are to limit the understanding of the six days of creation to epics or long periods of time, not 24-hour days, then why do we take the Sabbath as a literal 24-hour day? Certainly God's not saying keep the epic period of the Sabbath like, oh, that could be 10,000 years. No, why, why, does, why does that have a different understanding of morning and evening and not the natural way the other six days have it? You, you're with me? And again, I don't want you to get lost in the weeds here, but those are issues that just be aware of, but I want you to be aware of them so you are a good Berean and you can go and search these things out for yourself, all right? Look, for example, and uh, show you another argument, uh, argument uh, why it's important to, to have an understanding of the 24-hour days, that it means what it says, morning and evening, is when you read, and, and I just, I didn't do all of these, but you could go through all of, all six, or all seven, rather, and you would see these, but verse 5, uh, it says, God called the light day. This is the, um, the first day. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And notice the language here. It's very straightforward. It's not complicated. And there was evening, and there was morning, and that is called what? There's not a trick. The first day. So remember I mentioned that word yom? Say yom. Yom, all right? Uh, the interesting thing about the word yom, uh, that people who are Hebrew scholars that say, yes, the word day can be used to speak about broad periods of time. You know, in the Bible, it speaks about the day of the Lord. Now, is that literally a Thursday on a certain date? Or is that more of speaking about the day of the Lord? You know, a, a, a broad period, if you will. That's the way we use of it. The day of the Lord. Jesus speaking about his uh, coming return. Um, I don't know, I have the reference here somewhere. You know, he speaks about in that day, you will ask what you will. And, you know, in other words, he's speaking about it as a period of time. But here's what interesting people who are Hebrew geniuses and scholars, they'll say, yes, the word yom, say yom. Can mean that, can mean a broad period of time. But when, it's, when it has a number attached to it, it means 24 hours day cycle. Okay? So, if again, you're, you're approaching this to understand this is a 24 hour day, uh, what do we have? We have a number attached, correct? And if you went to, and I'm not going to do all of these, uh, and God called the expanse heaven. And again, there was evening and there was morning. Notice evening. That's the reason Jews begin their day evening. Because the evening comes first and then the morning. We kind of do it odd. But, and there was evening and there was morning. And that is the second day. So a number is attached to Yom in the Hebrew. And when it is attached like that. The context defines it, meaning it's referring to a 24-hour day. It means a day like we speak about day, all right? So that's a freebie there. Charles Ryrie says, Evening and morning cannot be construed, cannot be construed to mean an age, a period, an epoch, but only a day. Everywhere in the Pentateuch, the word day, when used as here with a numerical adjective, in other words, when a number is attached to it, means a solar day now calibrated as 24 
hours. Okay, now you'll be quizzed on that later. So I uh, hope you listen well. No, I'm just kidding. All right. Now, again, there's 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 dissension from that. And uh, but just for time's sake, I want to kind of underscore something about this sixth day. Uh, you know what the Ten Commandments are, right? Um, God gave the law, the Ten Commandments, the tablets uh, to Moses. Uh, scripture tells us and these are in that little box there written out. Exodus 31, 18. And uh, he gave um, he gave Moses um, uh, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the Lord, Yahweh, gave Moses, when he had finished speaking with him, and I think it's very plausible that in that, in that time, Moses uh, learned uh, God's creation and, and those, that information, um, that the two tablets of the testimony, or the law, or the Ten Commandments, we would refer to it, tablets of stone... And how are those tablets of stone inscribed? They didn't say Moses wrote them, but they said they were what? Written with the what? Finger of God. So I would say whatever, whatever's on those tablets is a big deal. It's written by the finger of God. Now, here's a word you can use at your next party. Anthropomorphism. Say it. Anthro. Anthropomorphism. Now, you probably could guess what that word. Anthro. What, what words are attached to anthro? The study of bones and man and origin and school. You, they study what? Anthropology. Okay. Um, anthropomorphism is just simply this. It is a human characteristic attached to description of God. Does God have a literal finger and he had to use that finger to write? That's just a human way for us to understand in language that we can process how God, to, to attach and emphasize that God put his words on these stones. You with me? Did God need his finger to write? Oh, it's like, oh, doggone it. I messed up. Well, give me another tablet. No, it's just, again, talking about the hand of God. The ear of the Lord. Is there a giant ear? You know, what? again, it's, it's giving us a human framework of things that we understand to describe aspects of God. And I think that's part of the description of why I don't get too hung up with the day issue of creation. Because do you think God could truly communicate the various aspects and details of how He created for us to understand, right? He just gives us these, this template. Because why? That template, those six days or that seven-day cycle. Now, remember what we said in the very first time we had the introduction. Moses is writing this as a record and testimony of Israel's history. They're a nation of God. They're a nation of the covenant, they need to know their background because otherwise they're going to get caught up by all their neighbors with all their kooky views of creation and all their weird practices, right? So Moses was codifying in language so that generations would know who this Yahweh is and know that this Yahweh isn't just some tribal God like all the others, but this Yahweh is the God of very God who spoke. There wasn't these as some of these mythological Stories of creation, there weren't these mythological gods having some cosmic battle of chaos and out of that, you know, the more powerful God. That was a lot of their pagan neighbors had all these weird views, just like some people have weird views today, right? So if the purpose was to Moses for them to have an understanding of God's ways, of God's laws, then creation makes sense because one of the things that was very much a part of the law is the Jewish calendar, feasts, days, the Sabbath, all those things. So God used the pattern of the six or seven day, six day creation, but I'll say seven, even though he didn't do create on the seventh, use that 
again, as a template, as a pattern that would be easily translatable in the practice and worship of God's people, of Judaism. Does that make sense? So again, all I'm saying is we want to get hung up in all the blue wire and yellow wire and what came first, the chicken or the egg. And I don't know. I don't know. There's a lot of great studies, but when the day is done, God created. All right. So, so, but I want you to see the pattern here. So the law, let's go back to Exodus 31, 18. I got another one there. 32, 16 says the same thing a little differently. It's in that box on your page one. The tablets. What tablets are you talking about? The tablets that the testimony, the law, the tablets were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. All right. So that would tell me, just talking about the Ten Commandments now, that these aren't just, you know, Moses' top ten ways to live a healthy and happy life, right? These are literally the very words of God. So with that, look at, look at, the fourth commandment. And it's Exodus. It's right there in your Bible. The fourth commandment. Notice what he says. Written by the finger of God. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter. Your male servant or your female servant. Or your livestock. Even the animals needed a break. Or the sojourner, the stranger, the, even if they weren't, you know, part of Israel. The sojourner who is within your gates. In other words, your household's going to keep the Sabbath. Now notice verse 11. Written by the finger of God. What does the written by the finger of God tell us about creation? For in, how what? What does it say? For in six days... The Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the Sabbath day. Kind of a summary. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. What I want you to see is before you're tempted to tinker and go beyond Scripture in regards to creation, consider what God literally wrote on stone Figuratively, with the finger of God to underscore what? That he is the creator. And not only the creator, but he created in six days and hallowed or sanctified. Sanctified just means made separate. The seventh day is holy. God literally put that in stone. So before you start coming up with alternative views and theories about aliens and whatever, just know that God considered... Now again, it doesn't tell us exactly all the mechanics. But it says very straightforwardly. And I, the reason I think it's so straightforward is because how would they click and understand what the Sabbath day if, God didn't, if they didn't have an understanding of... Six days. How do I know what six days are? Oh, the seventh day. You with me? I know this might be drinking out of a little fire hydrant, but I really want you to see, if you see nothing else, God put His word of creation, not only in the authority of Scripture we have in Genesis 1, but I would even say even further, He literally wrote it in stone in His word and His law that He gave to Moses, that it was important for Israel to understand where they came from. Any questions? Thus, statements. Yes, Claudette. They couldn't do it. They would have to. Well, again, it's like manna. What would they do with manna when they collected manna? They'd had to double up the day before. Now they might be milking and slopping. At 559, but again, the law was very distinct. Now, obviously, as time went on, man, 
this is kind of where we got into the Pharisees later. You know, they went as far as to add things, right? But I think the simplicity of it is this. Remember, Jesus even said when he was uh, when the disciples were picking grain on the Sabbath. Remember that? And the Pharisees said, "Aha! We knew you were a lawbreaker." And he said, "Don't you remember David when he was hungry, ate the the bread, the show bread, and you know he." But he said, look, the Sabbath was made for man, man not for the Sabbath. It was a gift. So the simplest answer is obviously they had to figure something out of how to do that. But they had to keep the Sabbath lest anything was considered work or labor. And so I don't know exactly, but I know that in order to obey that, they couldn't do any work. I mean... You know, unfortunately, as I said, with man, he tried to add on laws. There was a stipulation in the law that if your ox fell in the ditch, that was considered a compassionate, merciful action. But they even had stipulations of how hard you could work to get that ox. I mean, it got crazy. Now, Moses doesn't tell us, he doesn't lay all those laws down. So, again, I think, again, what I think and won't give you any good. But... Uh, that's all I can address on that. Obviously, they had to do something. And I think the, the way that Israel handled the manna, just even like Jews today, they prepare for food, prepare for their necessities. They do that on the sixth day or prep, prepare the food and everything so that they don't have to do any of that. Somehow, they must have been, whether God gave those animals a special dispensation, like my dog can hold it for a long time. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> but I know they, had, they obeyed it, but somehow it worked out. And I would just say this. This is, a, this is kind of a, well, really simplistic. It's kind of like when you obey God, God will take care of those things that in the natural can be problematic. But because you're honoring and obeying God, He has a way of working those things because your heart is to honor him with your words. So somehow they must have been able to do that. I don't know. Yeah. All right. Any other thoughts? All right. Let's look at the little chart there. And one of the things that as we get to this, I want you to notice a, a uh, kind of a pattern or a structure, if you will. There's two... There's two um, aspects in Genesis 1 of God's creation. Um, two aspects of uh, God's creation. The first part in days 1, 2, and 3, and I'm looking still on page 1, that little color chart there, uh, that we see that God formed what was needed. In days 1, 2, and 3, God formed the structure, if you will, of what was needed. In days 4, 5, and 6, he filled what he formed, all right? Does that make sense? And then on the seventh day was the Sabbath day. So let's look, first of all, at the first phase of God's formation, God's form, all right? So day one, Genesis 1, verses 3 through 5. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Don't miss that. God said, and boom, boom. You know, people talk about the Big Bang. God said it, bang, it happened, all right? And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. You know, sometimes scripture is just pretty straightforward. And there was evening, and there was morning, and here we go. Yom got a one the first day. That was the first Day. Now, what's, what's interesting, and you may have caught this, is how could there be light? How could there be light when the elements, the, the light bearers, aren't mentioned till later on on the fourth day? How could there be light? Well, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to consider the fact that the Bible speaks about uh, Jesus himself in John 1 5, that the light shines in the darkness. He's the light, life of many. He is the light. And look at the scripture, one of my favorites in Revelation 22.5, speaking about the, the millennial 
uh, or actually the, the not just not the millennial kingdom, but the, uh, the eternal kingdom. And notice that in this eternal kingdom, and night will be no more. Do you see that in your outline there? They will need no light of lamp or sun. For what does it say? Who is the light? For the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. So God himself isn't, doesn't need the sun or reflection, right? Because he is the radiance of light within his very create or in his very being there. And so we see day one, let there be light. And there was light. Now, something interesting I don't want you to miss here. And um, that is, and this is something I thought was really interesting that uh, I read, is that somebody, again, noted that in Genesis 1-3, we see the covenant. We see, you know, one of the things in Bible study that is kind of a, uh, what we would call a hermeneutical or an interpretive principle is the law of first mention. So anytime you're studying the Bible and you see the first mention of something in Scripture, make note of that, and that's a way sometimes you can help determine a pattern or the way God used it here. Well, let me suggest this may be, I would, I would always suggest, I always said Genesis 3.15 was the first mention of covenant. Because remember, that was the promise of the seed that was going to be, that was going to come from the, remember that was a curse spoken to Satan there in the garden. Genesis 3, chapter verse 15. And there will be one who will come from the seed of the woman to crush your seed, right? That was the promise. And we know that was a prophetic word speaking of the future redemption of, of Jesus in, in seed form, if you will. But I would, from reading what something somebody wrote, I would even suggest that the first covenant word is in Genesis 1 3. Now you're like reading that thing, but I don't see the word covenant. Okay. Look at. Um, Jeremiah 33, or it's on the screen. Notice this interesting scripture that the Lord is speaking. Remember, Jeremiah is a prophet of judgment and, uh, you know, to Israel and not only about what God was going to do in bringing judgment, but also in God's restoration. And kind of within that, he makes this statement. It's in Genesis 33, 20 and 21. Thus says the Lord, capitalized there, which is the word Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh, and he's talking about the, the covenant that is, is um, unconditional, telling Israel as a promise of restoration, even though they're going to be put under judgment. Thus says the Lord, Yahweh, if you can break my covenant, now look at the language here, if you can break my covenant with the day... And my covenant with the, what? The night. So that day and night will not come at their appointed time. In other words, if you can somehow change that. Then he says, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken. In other words, if you can tamper with the covenant I made with the day and the night. If you can, if you can tinker with that and make that break down. Then my covenant I made with David, which was a prophet or a promise, covenant promise of a future son of David that wasn't Solomon, but we know that was Christ. Then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken. It's hyperbole. He's saying it's like telling Abraham, count the sand on the seashore, count the stars in the sky. It's impossible. If you can do any of that, then. And he says, look, my promise is unconditional because it's covenant. That God has made with himself. He says, then also, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken. So that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne. And my covenant with the political priests, my ministers. The point being is that may suggest an early picture of covenant right there at the very get-go of creation. I thought that was kind of neat. Day 2, verse 6 through 8. And God said, God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. Okay, I'm going to read that again. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. 
And God, verse 7, made the expanse and separated the waters. Now look at this. That were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And so it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. Not heaven in the terms of where we speak of the presence of God. Heavens in the sense of the sky. And there was evening and there was morning. And that, there, and that was the second day. Now, the understanding of this is that God put an expanse between the upper waters and the lower waters, between the sky and between the earth, and that the effect of those who have looked at this and tried to, pro to provide us a study is that up until the flood, the earth functioned, and this may be overly simplistic, in fact, I know it is, but that's just my little pea brain, is that the earth functioned somewhat as a greenhouse. You with me? Uh, that the waters, that, and part of it is suggested, and this is, I think, Ken Ham, uh, well, both of them have some studies on this that are interesting, but how the earth could rapidly grow and maintain a certain equili equilibrium as far as temperature, and the growth that the earth basically was, was operating, in our understanding, like a greenhouse. Where it was, you know, the, the, the uh, atmosphere, the, I don't want to say the water, but the, uh, uh, say what? Humidity, yes. All of that was kind of self-governing, self-watering, okay? But there was apparent, an ex there was apparent uh, buildup, I guess, or... or or division that God kept because up until uh, the earth experienced a deluge of rain and flooding of when that expanse broke. All right, That's probably an overly simplistic way to try to give an understanding of that. Uh, it seems that the waters were like a vaporous blanket and covered uh, the original creation. And when God separated the land mass from the lower waters, that eventually those became as the, the oceans and the seas and the upper waters played a part in the flood during Noah's day. That's day two, all right? Any questions? Doesn't mean I know the answer, but yes. Right, that's what I'm saying. So there wasn't rain, so that, how did the, yeah, yeah. So again, the, the, that it, it's how it created watered itself without the rain, right? Which always made it interesting when Noah began to speak about the flood and the rain, they were like, what's rain? You know, I mean, I don't know if they said that, but day three, verse nine through 13. Now this has some interesting stuff here. And God said, day three now, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. Verse 10, God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together, he called seas. So we see there were some seas existing. And God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which their seed, each according to its kind, on the earth. And it was so. Verse 12. The earth brought forth vegetation. Plants yielding seed according to their own kinds and trees bearing fruit in which in their seed, uh, which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And here there was evening and there was morning the third day. Now, a couple of things here is that one of the things that Moses wanted to make sure and make clear uh, is that unlike Israel's pagan neighbors, that the people of Israel clearly understood that God, the true God, the only God, was the one that uh, made the heavens, the earth, the seas. Because one of the things that pagan religions did, their neighbors, uh, and even today, is they deified nature. They deified creation. They deified the God of rain, the God or the God of uh, the moon, the sun, all those things. And so Moses is underscoring that it was God who created the earth. And so we see that God had called it good. Now, what's interesting about creation 
is the kind of fast forward. And this, this again, this is one of those theories that you can get in trouble with. But, but what if in creation, in that six-day account, but because of when sin entered into humankind and in a sense infected and polluted humankind, it didn't just, it didn't just affect humanity, but Romans 8 tells us it actually affected creation as well. Look at uh, Romans 8, um, verse 20. It's on the screen. Against its will, against its will, it speaks of creation as having a will, which is interesting. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse, but with eager hope. The creation, unlike some human beings, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom, what? From death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. So with sin, according to Romans 8, the creation, earth, tree, everything, was affected because of the fall of man. Is that a fair, clear reading of that? So why could not it be possible that with the, in, or with the entrance of the fall of man, that the creation that perhaps up until Genesis 3 was clearly a very new existence, that because of the effects of sin, rapidly exemplified the effects of sin and decay immediately. And began to show, so it gave the appearance of an aging that happened quite rapidly. That maybe prior to Genesis, the end of Genesis 2, perhaps still evidenced a very young earth. I'm just throwing this out. That with the fall, now this is a really crazy example. Alright, Connie, so don't, don't tell your son, okay? Or whoever. Have you ever seen pictures, and it's made to show you the effects of drug abuse. And you see a picture of a beautiful woman, 28 years old. And then they show a picture of her five years later from the effects of crack, cocaine, or whatever. And you know what that person looks like. What, is the, what does she... What does she evidence? Decay. Right? She evidence where she looks like she's 60. Within five... How many of you have ever seen pictures like that? Or, you know, whatever. Now again, that, I, you know, don't, don't go starting a church over this. I'm just saying, could it be, based on Romans 8, that the effects of sin were so great and so cataclysmic upon the creation that the earth showed an immediate effect that just was accelerated with time of an aging. That when we look backwards, we say, oh, the earth must be 50 million years old. Could it be that that just shows the effects and the rapid uh, digression of creation as a result of sin? I don't know. But it's a possibility, right? You know, when something doesn't say, you can put anything in the white space. But I think that, again, I think it's interesting, that Romans 8 passage. Now, I want you to see something here. Notice the phrase in verse 11 and 12. The specific term where God... And let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, and which is their seed, each according to its kind. Um, verse 12. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds. I didn't highlight it. And trees bearing fruit, and which is their seed, each 
according to its kind. The reason I underscore that is because, and I think I may have this in your, uh, there at the bottom of page two, is, you know, one of the big contentions or one of the big theories within natural selection or evolution is that, and, and there's two terms that you may or may not be familiar with, and that's the term macroevolution versus microevolution. Macroevolution would be what natural selectionists, or not, it may not be atheists, but I'm just saying they are uh, evolutionists that see change within a species not happening within its own kind. Think about how many varieties of dogs there are. Just chihuahuas. But guess what? They're all dogs. There's not a chihuahua that became a horse. Microevolution recognizes change within its species and kind. No debate there. You certainly see the, I don't want to use it, but you could see the evolving of species through time and effects. For example, it can even be manipulated to some degree. When somebody might want to create a new breed of a dog. But they're still working within that species. They can't take a snake and make a giraffe. But that's what macroevolution or evolution theory would suggest. That non-vertebrate, is that how you say it? Non-vertebrate? Vertebrate. Yes, you're right. Um, became, you know, the sludge from the ocean and worked its way up through a three million years and, you know, those legs popped out after a couple of, you know, and that you have these cross species to each other. That's macroevolution. That, that just seems to, that defies reason and logic and even, again, that's why it's called evolutionary theory. But again, there certainly is change within a certain group. So, again, if you look at, I think I have a quote there from MacArthur from his study Bible that was worth putting in there, where he says, the same phrase, it's right above that gray box, page two, the same phrase is used to describe the perpetuating, the ongoing reproduction of animals within their created species. And you see it, 24, 24, 21, 24, and 25. And it indicates that evolution, which proposes reproduction across species lines, is a false explanation of origins. Don't miss according to its kind. Okay? Now let's go quickly this last part. So we see that God, the first four, three days... Going back to that little colored chart on page one, what was happening in the first three days? God was creating the form that we needed. Okay, Now, days four, five, and six, what's he going to do? He's going to fill the form. Okay, So let's look at day four, which is he, he created, light was created, but now he's going to create the, the elements, the, the signs, the, the planets, the stars, Verse 14, and God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. Now, and again, notice the language here. He's talking about creation. He's in the fourth day and God is recognizing in his creation that he's using the elements of creation to give humankind. This isn't for God. He's giving humankind or humanity a mechanism to measure and understand time. Not epics and periods. It wouldn't make sense. You with me? So let these elements, the lights and the expanse of the heavens, the sky, separating day and night, let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and years. Well, how are you going to understand days and years with except just the straightforwardness of the language? And let them be lights in the expanse, in the skies, if you will, of the heavens, not heaven up with God, 
to give light upon the earth. And it was so. Verse 16, and God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them. I love this. God set them. Okay, you're going to go here. You're going to go, well, you can go there. You're going to, I mean, I love just the language there of God's detail in creation. God set them. God's, it wasn't just some chaotic, random, chaotic creation. God is very orderly. Set them. Well, you're not son. I want you to be, I want you, yeah, it's a little too, you know, a little too close to earth. You know what I mean? You know I mean? Just, I mean, he was very orderly. And personal in his. I love the language there. Um, And God, verse 17, and God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth yom, the fourth day. Right? God created the structure, and then he put the elements in there and gave them an assignment. He assigned them very specifically of what they are to do. And again, I brought up about the importance for the Jews to understand. Leviticus 26 talks about keeping annual feasts and times and seasons. How were they to understand how they didn't have clocks? They didn't have time. They didn't have any of that. How were they to understand and govern when it was time to do certain things unless it was not a straightforward way to understand what was day and what was night? Stars. Now, there's something interesting, a couple of things here. One is that, uh, let me skip that. Um, Of course, do I have, I don't think I have it written out there, but Deuteronomy 4, God warned them to not be like their neighbors, to worship what God had created. Because again, the pagan neighbors deified sun, moon, star, all these things. He said, therefore, watch yourselves very carefully since you saw no form on the day that God spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. It's on the screen. Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image. Talking about idolatry. First two commandments. Don't make the likeness of any animal. The likeness of anything that creeps on the ground. Then he says, and beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, not heaven where God is, when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the hosts of heaven. In context, what is he talking about? He's talking about idolatry that you be drawn away and bow to them and serve them. What is Moses putting here? God made these things. God orchestrated these things. These are things that are not gods and powers within themselves. They are creations of made by God for God's glory and God's purpose. And he wants the people of Israel not to get caught up in deifying what God has created. Remember the language of Romans 1? They turned the creation, they rejected the worship of the creator. Romans 1 language for the creation, right? Instead of seeing birds and all these things as evidence of God's glory and God's variety and God's creation, they began to worship what was created Instead of the creator. That's Romans 1. Um, we'll stop there. But I do want to point out to you one thing. We'll pick up next week. We'll finish, look at day 5. And get into the creation of humanity. But there's something interesting. And I'm not, I'm not saying. I'm, I'm just saying I think you'd find it interesting. How many of you remember or know the name of D. James Kennedy? How many of you that name recognizes that name. He's been with the Lord since 2007. D. James Kennedy, pastor of a great church in Fort Lauderdale, Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church. How many of you ever heard of Evangelism Explosion? Anybody ever did that? That came out of D. James Kennedy's church. Uh, D. James Kennedy was on television for years. He preached from a robe. He had the voice of God when he preached, formal. But he was a tremendous uh, student of God's word. And um, you may be interested, um, he has a uh, message, and I put the uh, YouTube uh, address there. And he has a pretty strong case of, of uh, showing 
And he kind of ties it into the, the birth of Christ, but it's not a Christmas message. And it's called the real meaning of the, the real meaning of the zodiac. You know, the various uh, astrological zodiac signs. Well, he makes a strong case that that was originally God's design and God's purpose to communicate the works of God that became corrupted and idolized by man. And so you may, it's only 30 minutes, but you may want to watch that. And he has a book where he goes into more detail called The Real Meaning of the Zodiac. Now, again, he's not advocating that tomorrow morning you open the, the Lakeland Ledger and start reading what it says about being an Aquarius, all right, or your Zodiac. He's not talking about that. He's just talking about how, again, the heavens declare the glory of God. And it's really an interesting uh, teaching he does. And I think you'll find it interesting, all right?